Well, William Carey was born in England in the year 1761, so a couple hundred years ago now. Uh, but William Carey is known as the father of modern missions for the major role that he played in igniting the tremendous missionary activity among Protestant Christians over the last 200 years. Now, it was not that there was no missionary activity prior to Carey. In fact, he was inspired by some of those that went before him. But the missionary activity in his day was fairly limited, and Protestant Christianity at the time of his birth was largely confined to Europe and uh, America. Well, not so today as Christianity has spread to virtually every corner of the globe. In 1792, Carey published an influential pamphlet that examined the responsibility Christians have to take the gospel to those in foreign lands who had never heard it. Now, Carey's goal in publishing this essay in, in England was to rouse an evangelistic zeal among the churches of his day that he thought was sorely lacking. He saw a lack of evangelistic zeal among those churches. He showed from scripture the responsibility that all Christians have to, get in, have to engage in the Great Commission. And he ended the, the pamphlet by calling all Christians to pray for the work of the gospel in other countries and by encouraging churches to, to mobilize, to come together to, to see the work of global missions go forth. Well, his, his, the immediate effect of his efforts was the formation of the Baptist Missionary Society in England in 1792. He would be the, the first missionary appointee of that society and would spend the, the last 40 years of his life in India. And many of you are probably familiar with his, his work there in India. But his influence did not stop there. As one author put it, the long-term results of Carey's efforts included the launching of hundreds of Protestant foreign missionary societies and innumerable missionaries to take the gospel to the entire world. Well, why did Carey feel such a burden to mobilize the church for the spread of the gospel? Well, why did he feel a burden to go himself? Well, certainly it came from his love for God, for his appreciation for the gospel that it had taken root in his heart and changed his heart. But that produced in Kerry a love and concern for the millions of people around the world who did not know God. Now, prior to the, the publication of his pamphlet, Kerry had actually spent years, years compiling information about foreign countries and the, the social and religious uh, climate or condition of the people in those countries. He spent years thinking on what might be done for the people in those countries, how the gospel might be spread to them. Uh, Carey had a, a deep love and concern for millions of people that he had never met, and millions of people that he would never meet. He was a man that was deeply shaped by the gospel of God's grace. Well, in our sermon text for this morning, we see this same heart and same motivation present in the Apostle Paul. You can go ahead and turn with me to Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. Uh, the text for that is uh, one in your Bibles. It probably will be on the screen, but we also have it printed in the bulletin for you if you don't have a Bible with you. And if you don't have a Bible and you'd like a Bible, please come talk to me and we'll see what we can do about that. Uh, well, we're beginning a, a series through the book of Colossians this morning, and in these opening verses of Paul's letter to the Colossians, uh, we see Paul's concern and love for the, the Christians in that city, those Christians in that church, which is a group of people that the Apostle Paul had never met. He did not know them, but he was eager to see the gospel flourish in their midst. 
so eager, in fact, that he took the time to write them an entire letter. Well, this letter is the book of Colossians. So follow along with me as I read, starting in Colossians 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints in Christ at Colossae, who are faithful brothers and sisters, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. For we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all the saints because of the hope reserved for you in heaven. You have already heard about this hope in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. It is bearing fruit and growing all over the world, just as it has among you since the day you heard it and came to truly appreciate God's grace. You learn this from Epaphras, our dearly loved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and he has told us about your love in the spirit. For this reason also, since the day we heard this, we have not stopped praying for you. We are asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding, so that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience joyfully, giving thanks to the Father who has enabled you to share in the saints' inheritance in the light. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Friends, uh, the main idea of this text and, and therefore the main idea of this sermon is that a love for God and a thankfulness for God's grace lead to a gospel-motivated concern for others and a thankfulness for God's work in others. A love for God and a thankfulness for God's grace lead to a gospel-motivated concern for others and a thankfulness for God's work in others. I have three points to to help us consider this text this morning. The first is gospel-motivated concern. The second is gospel-inspired gratitude. And the third is gospel-centered prayer. Gospel-motivated concern gospel-inspired gratitude, and gospel-centered prayer. So first, gospel-motivated concern. Now look back with me at verses 1 and 2 of Colossians chapter 1. As you see in verse 2, Paul was writing to the Christians in the city of Colossae. Now in the New Testament, the term saint, this word that Paul uses to address them, does not refer to a group of extraordinary Christians. Uh, It does not refer to a group of extraordinary Christians. It simply means a Christian, any Christian. Friends, if you are a Christian, you are a saint. Paul is writing to his faithful brothers and sisters in the Lord, the saints that were there in the church in Colossae. Now, this city was part of the Roman province of Asia, what is now part of modern-day Turkey. That's where the city of Colossae was. It had at one time been a very prominent city in that province as it lay at the intersection of two major trade roads uh, that, that ran through the city, so a lot of trade passed through the city there. And by Paul's day, it had begun to decline a bit in importance as one of those major trade roads had moved to a, a neighboring city. Uh, but by virtue of it, it lying on these trade roads for so long, uh, the city of Colossae was a very diverse city. It, it boasted a very diverse population. Something like like what you might think of as as the UAE. It's a diverse place because of the economy of this place. Well, there was a a large Jewish population in the city, uh, but the majority of the church was likely Gentile or or non-Jewish. In verse 7 of this opening chapter, 
we learn that the gospel came to the Colossians through a man by the name of Epaphras. Uh, we see in Colossians chapter 2, verse 1, that Paul had never been to the city. However, Paul had spent three years in the city of Ephesus, preaching the gospel, planting and strengthening the church there in Ephesus. The city of Ephesus was about 100 miles away from Colossae. So there's a very good chance that Epaphras heard the gospel from Paul in Ephesus, was converted, and then took the gospel back to his hometown of Colossae and planted the church there. Now Paul opens this, this letter by addressing these saints in Colossae, but he also introduces himself to this church as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, the, that term apostle, the office of apostle, uniquely refers to those who were eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection and were commissioned by God to be his ambassadors to the world during the first days of the church. And so, Christ appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus. He was commissioned by the risen Christ to be an apostle. The office of apostle was a unique office and only existed in those early days of the church. That's an office that does not still exist today. The apostles were chosen and commissioned by God. They were given unique authority by God to serve as the foundation of the church. The church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Paul also introduces Timothy in these opening verses, his, his constant companion on some of his missionary journeys. This is the same Timothy to whom the letters of 1st and 2nd Timothy were written in the Bible. Uh, despite this mention of Timothy, it's, it's more than likely that Paul was really like the sole or the, the main author of the book of Colossians. We, we see a number of personal references to Paul throughout the letter. And it seems likely that what prompted Paul to write this letter to the Colossians, what led to him writing this letter, was that Epaphras brought him a report from the church. So you see that in verse 8 of this, this opening chapter. And Paul likely wrote the letter from uh, while he was imprisoned in Rome, uh, which meant, would have meant that Epaphras traveled something like 1,000 miles to bring Paul this report. The letter would have traveled another 1,000 miles back. So what prompted Epaphras' concern? Why would he make such a, such a long journey? Why would Paul send a letter carrier on a, another long journey to bring this letter back to the Colossians? We're not 100% certain but the content of the letter seemed to suggest that false teaching was beginning to threaten the church in Colossae. A false teaching that, that tried to diminish the work of, of Jesus and add to the gospel by insisting on the need for things other than Jesus in his word to, to please God. Certain religious practices needed to be added to the gospel and other to please the Lord. They started to, to we see in, in chapter 2, they were tempted towards the worship of angels. They were looking for their sufficiency in things other than Jesus Christ. And so in response, Paul writes this letter insisting on the sufficiency and the supremacy of Jesus Christ and his word for the spiritual life sustainment of the Colossians. Well, that's a, it's a brief overview of the book as we're going to be in the book of Colossians for the next several weeks. But what I want you to take away from these, these first few verses is just Paul's concern for the Colossians. That's not to mention the concern that Epaphras had, who traveled such a long distance out of his own concern for the spiritual well-being of the church. But think about Paul's concern for the Colossians. 
Paul cared enough about this, this people to instruct and encourage them, though he had never met them. And we see that, that concern present through, throughout the text today and throughout the letter. And this concern that, that Paul had for the people of this church came from his larger concern for the gospel. His larger appreciation for the work of the gospel. His desire to see the work of the gospel spread throughout the earth. Paul cared for the Colossians because he cared about the gospel. He cared that it be shared and strengthened throughout the world. And so, brothers and sisters, as we go through these opening 14 verses of the letter, just take time and be asking yourself throughout the sermon, is this the type of concern that I have for the gospel? But to be concerned for God's glory is not just to be concerned for God's work in your own life, but it's to be concerned for the work of the gospel in the life of others. It is to be concerned for the work of the gospel around the world, for people around the world. So we see Paul's gospel-motivated concern beginning just by the fact that he would write this letter to the church in Colossae. Well, that takes us to the second point of the sermon, which is gospel-inspired gratitude. Gospel-inspired gratitude. Look back with me at verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. For we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints, because of the hope reserved for you in heaven. You have already heard about this hope in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. It is bearing fruit and growing all over the world, just as it has among you since the day you heard it and came to truly appreciate God's grace. You learn this from Epaphras, our dearly loved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and he has told us about your love in the Spirit. Friends, Paul's concern for the, the Colossians is abundantly evident by the fact that he regularly prayed for them. He gave thanks to God for them and their faith. Now, Paul did not give thanks for anything that they had done for him, as we might give thanks when someone does something for us. He had not received anything from the Colossians. No, Paul was thankful for God's work in the Colossians. And he was thankful despite the fact that he was in prison. His own circumstances weren't so great, but yet Paul was still thankful for them. And notice the things in their life for which Paul was specifically thankful. He was thankful for their faith. He was thankful that God had both saved them, and he was thankful for God's ongoing work in their lives, for their ongoing trust and confidence in Jesus Christ. And notice that it is, it is Jesus who is the object of the Colossians' faith. Paul is thankful for their faith in Jesus Christ. But friends, the object, the center, what biblical faith is centered on, the object of biblical faith, is the person of Jesus Christ. He is the one in whom we place our faith. And faith is, is not simply like a warm feeling that everything is going to work out. It's not simply a, a general belief that there must be some higher power. No, biblical faith is faith in Jesus Christ. It is faith in Jesus Christ alone. Biblical faith is to place one's confidence in the perfect life, the sufficient death, the miraculous resurrection, and the current rule and reign of Jesus Christ. 
Well, friends, it's the reason that we say that there is only one way of salvation, and that is Jesus Christ. The world does not contain many different religions leading to the same place. Salvation only comes in the person of Jesus Christ. The object, the center of biblical faith is in the person of Jesus Christ. And true faith, biblical faith, always results in a transformed life. And this is just what happened to the, the people in, Coloss- in Colossae. And Paul was not just thankful for their conversion, but that their faith produced love for their fellow Christians, for the saints there in Colossae. And Christians are, are called to love everyone, their, their neighbors, even their enemies. But above all, Christians are to love one another. They're to show a particular love for their fellow brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. We are the family of God, one body united in Jesus Christ. The the point, though, the point Paul is making when he gives thanks for their love, is that the gospel had made a difference in the lives of these Christians. By their faith, the Colossians gave evidence that their faith in Jesus Christ was real. Friends, true faith, biblical faith, always makes a difference. The fruit and and flowers of true faith are love and good works. What was the the reason for their faith? What what sustained the faith of the Colossians? What what motivated their love? Well, we'll look at verse 5. It was their hope. We have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all the saints because of the hope reserved for you in heaven. In fact, the the definition of faith given in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. One pastor defined Christian hope this way. Biblical hope is more than mere wish fulfillment. Scripture wraps the richness of all Christ's promises in that one little word, hope. All that Jesus secured for us through his death and resurrection, all that he promised us in the gospel comes to focus in that one little word, hope. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 27, Paul calls it the hope of glory. My friends, Christian hope is the hope of eternity. It is the hope of eternal life. Eternal reward, a life free from sin and spent in the presence of God forever. It is the hope, the confident hope that Jesus will return and those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ will share in his glory. It is the hope based in the fact that Jesus has defeated sin and death on the cross. That this world is not all there is, but we do, as Paul writes in verse 12, we are to share in the saints' inheritance in the light. The hope reserved for us in heaven. Friends, the author of Hebrews writes that this hope is an anchor for the soul. It's an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. Biblical hope is not wishful thinking like, I hope my car does not break down. I hope I sleep well tonight. No, biblical hope is an assured hope. It is a confident hope. It is anchored on the past faithfulness of God the faithfulness that you have seen demonstrated in the scriptures and in your own life. It is anchored on the future promises of God. What he promised is true. 
And it's anchored on the unchanging character of God, that what he says he will do. It is anchored on the past faithfulness of God, the future promises of God, and the unchanging character of God. It's in that way that, that faith and hope are linked. We have hope because we have faith in Jesus Christ. We are confident in his, in his sovereignty and in goodness. We believe in his promises. We believe that what he said is true. And at the same time, that, that hope sustains our faith when trials come and we want to give up. When life is difficult, we, we look forward to the fulfillment of our hope. When Jesus returns and we join him in his glory. So, friend, Paul gave thanks for the, the faith, hope, and love of the Colossians. And the thing that established and, and strengthened those things in these Christians at Colossae, well, it was the gospel that they had heard. The gospel that had been preached to them. Romans 10, 17, faith comes from what is heard. And what is heard comes through the message about Christ. In other words, the gospel. My friends, the, the gospel is the good news of God's redemption, his rescue through Jesus Christ. Friends, the Bible teaches and we believe that God is the creator and loving ruler of the world. He has created all men and women to love and honor him by living in submission to his kind, loving, caring rule. The Bible also teaches that all have rejected his loving rule. We have all rebelled against him and sought to live in our, for, our, our, for our own way, in our own way, for our own pleasure. Now, this is what the Bible calls sin. And God's just punishment, God's just judgment for the rebellion of all people, for your rebellion and for my rebellion, is death. And to be condemned to hell, permanently cut off from all of God's love and goodness. But the good news of the gospel is that in God's love, out of his abundant love, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, who is both fully God and fully man, to pay the penalty that you and I deserve for our rebellion. Now, Jesus, during his time on earth, lived perfectly under God's rule, and on the basis of his perfect life could be the sufficient sacrifice for sin. He died in your place, and he died in my place on the cross, and was raised three days later. And therefore, all who repent of their sins and place their faith in Jesus Christ, the, the person and the work of Jesus Christ, they receive eternal life and all the blessings of the sure hope we just talked about. Jesus took God's judgment in the place of those who would repent and believe that they would not one day face God's judgment. They do not have the fear of God's coming judgment. They have the hope of eternity, this sure hope that we just talked about. My friends, this is the message of the gospel, which is a message of God's grace. We, we see in verse 6 that it is the gospel, this gospel, that led the Colossians to come to understand and appreciate God's grace. The gospel tells of God's grace, of his love that was showered on undeserving sinners. And that is the story of the Bible, God's grace being showered on undeserving sinners. And it is this gospel... The word of truth that has the power to transform lives. It is the gospel alone that has the power to save. But Paul encouraged the Colossians in, in verse 6 by highlighting the work and the growth of the gospel around the world. He encouraged them to point out that the gospel was bearing fruit around the world. The same gospel that powerfully transformed their lives when they heard it. 
It was powerfully transforming others. And the gospel was producing new believers. God's kingdom was growing, not just there in Colossae, but around the world. But friends, that's what the gospel does. It, it grows. It expands. And what happened when William Carey encouraged Christians to take the gospel to distant shores? It grew. It transformed lives. It saved. Christians were made. Churches were planted. Why is Paul thankful for Epaphras? Because Epaphras was faithful to take the gospel to the city of Colossae, where it grew and it was planted, where it transformed lives. So the Colossians themselves were evidence of the power of the gospel. And notice that Paul was thankful that the gospel not only saved them, it not only saved these people in Colossae, but that it continued to transform their lives ever since they heard it. Paul was thankful for the ongoing work of the gospel in their lives. Brothers and sisters, the the gospel does not just produce a one-time change at the moment of salvation. The gospel is not just a message that you need to hear one time, place your faith in Jesus Christ, and then its work is done. No, that's the gospel that continues to sanctify you as a Christian that continues to transform you into the image of Jesus Christ. It is by the gospel that you can throw off the sin with which you still wrestle. It is the gospel that empowers you to put on love and grace and kindness towards others. Most of the letter to the Colossians, as we'll see over the next few weeks, is Paul reminding the Colossians of the basic truths of the gospel, those truths that we just rehearsed, so that they might walk worthy of the Lord. Or as Paul puts it in chapter 1, verse 28, that they might grow into maturity that their faith might be strengthened, that they might mature. Brothers and sisters of Emmanuel, I want you to know that there are many other churches and Christians who pray for you regularly and who give thanks for you regularly. And just as we pray for other churches around the UAE, as, as we did this morning, those churches spend time praying for you as well. And it's not just other churches around this nation. I I know for a fact that there are many churches and Christians in other parts of the world who are praying for you regularly. They're praying that the gospel will bear fruit in your lives. They're thankful for you and that God has been faithful to establish a church here and, and have a people here in Fujairah. They pray for you because they want to see the gospel grow and take root in Fujairah. They want to see the gospel grow and take root in your lives. And they want to see you equipped and encouraged to to share the gospel with others both here in this city and when you one day may return to your home countries. They want to see the gospel grow. They want to see the gospel spread. Friends, they care for you. And they pray for you. Brothers and sisters, I, I hope it is an encouragement to you to know that there are other churches and other Christians even around the world praying for you. And if that is an encouragement for you, which I think it should be, I think that should also be an encouragement for you to rejoice in the work of the gospel in others. You should rejoice at the the conversion of others. You should rejoice when you see another Christian joyfully endure trials and when they grow in their faith. This can sometimes be a, a challenge, especially if maybe you're at a place in your own spiritual life where you don't feel as if you are growing while you see others who are growing. But perhaps especially at those times, 
give thanks for God's work in others. I think it will be an encouragement to you. And Paul was able to do it while he was in prison. He wrote a whole letter to the church in Colossae. And so even if, 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 if you're not feeling, if you're growing actively, rejoice in God's work in others. This is what it looks like to be concerned with God's work around the world. And friends, let me go a step further and encourage you to take the time to share with others about how you see God at work in their lives. This is what Paul did for the Colossians. He was not just privately thankful for them. He wrote them a whole letter. The opening part is him just telling them how thankful he is for them. Friends like parents can easily miss the fact that their children are, are growing taller because they are with them every day. They just don't notice the small little incremental height differences in their children. Well, sometimes it can be hard for, for us to see the ways that we are growing spiritually. And sometimes we need others to point it out to us. So brothers and sisters, take the time to tell others about the spiritual growth that you see in them. Parents, praise your children when you see them growing in, in godliness. Friends, when you do this, I think you will strengthen and encourage them to persevere and continue to pursue the Lord, to continue to hold fast to the gospel, to continue to be strengthened. And one of the, the greatest joys of being a pastor is that I get a front row seat to see and hear the ways that God is at work in your lives. When he answers a prayer, when he helps you in your, your fight against sin, when he helps you to, to grow in maturity. And friends, those things are a joy. I'm thankful for you. I'm thankful for the ways that I have seen and do continue to see God at work in your lives. I'm thankful for today for the way that you sang out. It's something we've been talking about for a long time. That was an encouragement to me. So I'm thankful for you. So friends, let me encourage you to rejoice at God's work in others. Rejoice in God's work around the world. Give thanks when you hear that God is at work in other places. It's one of the reasons that we pray for, for other churches and other Christians in other countries every week here at Emmanuel. We do not always know them, but we want to pray that they would be strengthened in the gospel, that the gospel would bear fruit in their lives, and that through their ministry, the gospel would bear fruit where they are. Friends, God is at work outside of our church. God is at work outside of our city. And we want to be in prayer for that. But Paul did not simply stop at gratitude for the work of the gospel. He did not just give thanks for the Colossians. He prayed for the Colossians. He pleaded with the Lord on their behalf. So that takes us to the third and, and final point of the sermon, which is gospel-centered prayer. Look again with me at verse 9. For this reason... Also, since the day we heard this, we have not stopped praying for you. We are asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding, so that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience joyfully, giving thanks to the Father who has enabled you to share in the saints' inheritance in the light. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now Paul writes and tells the Colossians that since the day he has heard about the faith and the work of the gospel in their midst, that he has not stopped praying for them. 
In other words, that he regularly prays for them. Uh, that must have been an encouragement to hear that from the Colossians. But Paul's prayer for the Colossians was that the gospel would continue to be at work among them. So that as we see in verse 10, the reason he was praying that the gospel would continue to be at work in them was that so that they would walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Well, friends, parents and teachers are thankful and proud when a child learns to read. Or when a, a child that they teach learns to add and, and subtract. A parent is proud to hear that happening in the lives of their children. A teacher who is teaching that child is proud. But neither the parent or teacher would be satisfied as that, if that was the only knowledge that that child ever acquired. No, they want them to keep growing in knowledge. They want them to keep adding to what they have already learned. Well, that was Paul's desire for the Colossians. He prayed that they might be filled with the knowledge of his, God's, will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Now, friends, when, when Paul speaks of God's will here, here, he does not mean some particular direction for their life. He does not mean, for example, that he wants them to know whether they should take this job or that one, or whether they should rent this flat or that one, or whether they should marry this person or that one. No, that is, that is not what Paul is talking about. He is talking about being filled with a deep understanding of that which is pleasing to the Lord. Paul is talking about being filled with a deep understanding of that which is pleasing to the Lord. He wanted them to be filled with this knowledge so that they could walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Brothers and sisters, God's will for your life is that you walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. That is God's will for your life. It is that you obey him in your words, in your actions, in your attitudes, in your emotions. That is God's will. Now, God likely will not make clear to you which decision you should make in every situation that you're going to face. Now, often those decisions have no right or wrong answer, like which flat should you rent? But God has given you his wisdom to help you navigate those decisions as you face them in this life. He has revealed to you all that you need in order to live a life that is pleasing to him. He has revealed these things to you in his word. Friends, the Holy Spirit helps fill you with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding as you come to the word of God. As you fill yourself with the word of God. But brothers and sisters, if you want to be full of the knowledge of God's will, open your Bibles. If you want to be full of the knowledge of God's will, open your Bibles. Well, Paul's prayer here, it, it points to what theologians have come to call the necessity of Scripture and the sufficiency of Scripture. I think we'll likely be thinking about those two top topics in a couple of weeks next time we have our, our equipping class at 9 a.m. So if you want to know more about what I'm about to say, I invite you to come for that. But the, the doctrine of the necessity of Scripture says that God's Word is necessary for you to know who God is. We need God to have revealed himself to us. It's necessary for you to understand the gospel. Thus, Scripture is necessary for salvation. The gospel is necessary for salvation. The scripture is necessary for you to grow in godliness because it is necessary for knowing that which is pleasing to the Lord. It's necessary for knowing the Lord. So that's the necessity of scripture. 
One theologian defines the sufficiency of Scripture, so necessity, now sufficiency, describes the sufficiency of Scripture this way. The sufficiency of Scripture means that Scripture contains all the words of God we need for salvation, for trusting Him perfectly, and for obeying Him perfectly. The Scripture contains all the words of God we need for salvation, for trusting Him perfectly, and for obeying Him perfectly. We don't need God to speak to us outside of the Scripture. God has given us what we need in the Scripture. Now, this does not mean that we will trust Him and obey Him perfectly. It means God has given us what we need to obey Him in His Word. But friends, we are are tainted by sin. We are not going to obey Him perfectly. But that is not God's fault. That is our shortcoming. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 through 17. We thought about these this morning in our equipping class. Well, those verses say, All scripture is inspired by God, or breathed out by God, and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that, for the purpose, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Friends, if if you want to know God's will and how to live in a way that is pleasing to him, turn to him in his word. Seek to know his word. Pray that the Holy Spirit would be at work in your heart as you come to his word. Well, the, the false teaching that was threatening the church there in Colossae taught that Christ was not sufficient. That his word was not sufficient for spiritual growth and maturity. It seemed to be teaching that the Colossians needed other things. Well, in response, Paul's prayer for the Colossians is that they would be filled with the knowledge of Jesus and his word. That it would guide their words and their actions, their thoughts and their emotions. And all for the purpose that they would walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Really, much of the rest of the letter, as we will come to see over the, the next few weeks, Lord willing, it is Paul giving more details about what it looks like to walk worthy of the Lord. So much of the letter is going to fill in what it looks like to walk worthy of the Lord, or at least some of what it looks like to walk worthy of the Lord. But Paul gives a brief description of what it looks like here in his prayer. You might say a summary. It is to bear fruit in every good work, verse 10. Again, as we already thought about, true faith produces love and good works. To please the Lord is to let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Again, verse 10, it is to grow in the knowledge of God. Friends, being filled with the knowledge of God is not a one-time thing. You know, to suddenly snap our fingers and we're filled with the knowledge of God. It is not a one-time thing. Romans chapter 12, verse 2, we are to be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Friends, as Christians, we are to be continually transformed by his word. The church is to be continually reformed by the word of God. We must go to the word over and over and over again and submit ourselves to the word of God. My friends, to walk worthy of the Lord is to have great endurance and patience joyfully. It is to persevere in the midst of trial. To obey even when it is difficult. To give thanks to the Lord and have a joy in the Lord, even in the midst of great sorrow. And then to patiently hope and wait for his return. And notice where the strength to do that comes from. We see it in in verse 11. It comes from the Lord. He is the one who strengthens you with all power according to his glorious might. 
It is God who works in you to accomplish his good purposes. But friends, though he is the one that that strengthens you according to his glorious might, you must rely on him. You must place your faith in him. You must hope in him. Friends, just stop to think how encouraging it would be if someone prayed this prayer for you. This prayer that we are reading about is a prayer that Paul actually prayed for a particular people. He wrote them a letter to tell them exactly how he was praying for them. I mean, just think how encouraged you are when others advocate for you, when they maybe recommend you for a job or go out of their way to defend you when you are criticized. How much more should you be encouraged when someone cares enough for you to pray for you, to share how grateful they are for you? Brothers and sisters, let that be an encouragement for you to pray for others. Let that be an encouragement for you to pray for others. One of the greatest ways that you can love and serve the fellow members of this church is to simply pray for them. One of the greatest ways that you can love and encourage the fellow members of the church is to pray for them. They are your spiritual family, and and just as I trust that you desire and do pray for your biological family, You should be praying for your spiritual family. We are to love one another as fellow brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. Friends, if you do not know what to pray, use Paul's prayer as a guide. Pray that your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ would be filled with the knowledge of God's will. That they would walk in a manner worthy of Him, fully pleasing Him. Pray that God would strengthen them to endure joyfully. Friends, one of the reasons that we provide you with a membership directory when you join the church, that you get a directory of all the members of the church, and that we include you in that directory, is so that you can be praying for one another. I encourage you to use it every morning when you pray. Just go through the membership directory. Pray for a couple specific members of the church. Friends, even if you don't know them well, just, just pray something like Paul's prayer for them. And maybe consider sending them a message every now and again when you pray for them to encourage them that they know that you are in prayer for them. Friends, minister to them and encourage them the way that Paul ministered here to the the church in Colossae, to the believers in Colossae. Friends, Paul concluded his prayer by once again reminding the Colossian saints of the hope laid up for them in heaven. He encouraged them to joyfully thank God who has enabled them to share in the saints' inheritance in the light. Friends, it was God who enabled them to share in the inheritance. It was not the Colossians who enabled themselves to share in this inheritance. It was God who enabled them to do it. And therefore, they should praise him. And this type of thanksgiving, to be thankful for God's work in your life, to be thankful that God sent his salvation to you, This type of thanksgiving is also part of what it means to walk worthy of the Lord. Christian, it is good to regularly thank God for your salvation and work in your life. Your salvation is not your own work. It is the work of God in you. So it is a good thing to give God thanks and praise for that work. Paul reminded the Colossians of God's work of redemption in their lives. He reminded them of the gospel that had come to them. He reminded them of their redemption. Christian, what did Jesus accomplish on the cross for you? We see it in in verse 13 and 14. What did Jesus accomplish on the cross? He snatched you out of the domain of darkness. He rescued you from Satan's realm. 
The Bible says that prior to becoming uh, a child of God, prior to becoming a Christian, you were a child of wrath. A child of wrath. But like an adoptive parent who snatches a child from an orphanage and takes them into their own family. And God rescued you from the domain of darkness. He rescued you from the grip of Satan and hell. And even better than that, he transferred you into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of his son whom he loves. He forgave your sins through Jesus Christ, through Jesus Christ's work on the cross. But friends, that is the gospel message that saved the Colossians. And it was the same gospel message that was to sustain and strengthen the Colossians. Christians, it is that gospel message that saved you. And it is that gospel message that is to encourage and strengthen you. You're to remember Jesus' work on your behalf. You were once a child of wrath. You were once in the domain of darkness. But through the work of Jesus Christ, you've been rescued and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. Brothers and sisters, these glorious realities should cause you to want to abound in thanksgiving to God. They should make you overflow with praise and thanksgiving. And they should cause you to walk, to want to walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. It should give you a desire to be fully pleasing to the Lord. It should give you a gospel-motivated concern for others. Friends, a love for God and a thankfulness for God's grace lead to a gospel-motivated concern for others and a thankfulness for God's work in others. Let's pray.